Gina Della from Pella. Get up to five years no interest, five months no first payment, and 5% same-day order savings at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 555 has been extended, but only through October 31st. See PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So, Eric Bilstedt, you know why I'm a little bit bummed out today? Why is that? Because when I was looking at the week ahead... I figured I would not be here in the studio today. I figured we would most likely, worst case scenario, probably be out at American Family Field mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. today would have been Game Five yeah. of the Ameri- of the National League Division Series. Yeah, probably would have started what late afternoon. Yeah, I think we'd it was supposed to be four o'clock. There. We would have done another one of yeah. our like three hour shows where we kind of highlight baseball and things like that. And I mean, I, I really. I, so I'm sitting there thinking, why am I a little bit depressed today? Because the reality is, for, for most people with sports teams and stuff, you root for your team, but it doesn't really change your life. And I'm not saying this changes our life, but it does change our schedule, working oh, sure. for the flagship yeah. station. So I was thinking, this is kind of cool that this is what Thursday's going to be, because I love those broadcasts and getting a chance to talk to Bob Euchre and Mark Atanasio. It's always a lot of fun for me, and it's like, huh, we're not out there. The season's over. Well, it's so abrupt. Yeah. Right? It just, boom, done. Everything's finished. And then it's like, whoa, you don't even get to exhale. Right. Well, I mean, last year might have even been worse because it was like the one game. You know, or right. I guess it was uh, two yeah, out of three. That, but, yeah, yeah, right. But, right, it's it's the, the whole thing where, right, especially, can you imagine being like the St. Louis Cardinals? You have this great run in September. You win all these games, and then you lose on a walk-off yeah, score, and, and it's all over. The season's over. See you guys later. Um, pitchers and catchers report sometime in February. Right. So, in any event, I'm a little bit bummed out mm-hmm. because it would have been a – I, I it would have been a great game five, and uh, the, the Brewers had a very very good season. There's no question about it. But you're right; it was an abrupt ending, and it was a, kind of a tough way to go. Yeah, it's things a little bit, but that's okay. We have a lot of ground to cover before that. Let us get started. You know, I know we talk a lot about media bias on this program, and we point out the, these examples, and and it's it's interesting because media bias comes in a, in a couple ways first of all sometimes it comes in, in what you actually find in the stories if you as i do read the new york times on a regular basis there's there's no pretense of 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 journalism anymore what happens is you will have they're, they're all in for the biden administration they were all in against donald trump and the, the supposed news stories um also contain like a lot of editorial opinion that are mixed in well the republicans say they object to the spending bill because of this but that's not true you know it, you find that in, in the stories so you you have the uh, the news stories that themselves contain the bias. But one of the more, I mean, other examples of overt bias that you find in the media is in what gets, what doesn't get covered. Because if you don't know about something, you, you can't have an opinion on it. So there's all sorts of stuff that would, I think, otherwise make the news, but it doesn't because, gee, this might tend to reflect poorly on people who we think are icons, or this doesn't really fit our agenda, so we're not going to report it, or this is a claim being made by those evil Republicans, and we don't want to give it any sort of credence at all. But but here's one of the most staggering examples of that. Okay, Katie Couric, of course, who in her, her own right is this liberal icon. Katie Couric has a new book 
that is coming out. And it's one of these kind of tell-all sort of things. But in her book, this is what she talks about. Apparently in 2016, she does an interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, who is, of course, the, the late Supreme Court Justice, who, you know, you really talk about liberal icons. She was the ultimate liberal icon. So Katie Couric sits down with an interview, to do an interview with her in 2006. And to, in 2016, and this is the period of time where it's kind of the height of the controversy involving Colin Kaepernick and, you know, kneeling during the national anthem and things like that. So she's doing this interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And in the course of the interview, she asks her about how she feels this is how the Supreme Court justice feels about these people, you know, kneeling during the national anthem. And Ginsburg tells Corrick that, well, she opposed the action. Now, this is this this liberal lion saying, I, I, I don't think this is right. She said that those who kneel during the anthem were showing, quote, contempt for a government that has made it possible for their parents and grandparents to live a decent life. Okay, so that that's that's what what she says, and of course, at the time, that would have been incredibly newsworthy, because I mean, here you, you've got this again these fault lines that are developing, and to have a very liberal Supreme Court justice who, like I say, is is viewed as a liberal icon, saying I I just I I don't support this type of stuff, and it shows a contempt for government that has made it possible for their parents and grandparents to live a decent life. That would be a lead sort of story that's out there. If you had a conservative Supreme Court justice who said that, you know that would be screaming headlines all across the country, and the spin you would get in the New York Times and an ABC and an NBC and an MSNBC was, look how out of touch, look how evil, look how racist, look how clueless this conservative justice is. If Clarence Thomas had said that, you know very well that would have been the headline. So now you've got what is is clearly the lead. It is newsworthy. Matter of fact, it is probably headline worthy. So what does Katie Couric do with it? Well, apparently she confesses in this book that she was conflicted about this because she was a huge fan of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she acknowledged she knew if I go with this statement, if I quote her on this, if I show this report, what's going to happen is all you know what is going to break loose because everybody's going to say, I mean, what, what's going on? You've got this liberal icon who is not siding with the people that are kneeling, and she's speaking about it in this very, very direct form. Katie Couric, in order to protect Ruth Bader Ginsburg for criticism from the left, decides to kill that story doesn't run that piece, which would normally be, like I say, the screaming headline lead that comes from it. She makes the decision that, well, gee, I really like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And if I put out what she said in this interview, it's going to make her look bad with her liberal base and, and maybe my liberal followers, because maybe I'm going to get some criticism for, for airing this. So we're just going to 86 it. We're not going to put it out there. Now, it's interesting because this revelation is getting all sorts of uh, attention 
from people on the left. New York Times, Maggie Haberman. This is toxic on a lot of levels. Megan McCain saying it's not the role of a journalist. You can't complain about distrust of the media when one of the most famous interviewers admits to rigging interviews to make liberals look good over and over and over again. It's one of these amazing things because generally speaking, if you're doing an interview with a big newsmaker and you get something like this, you get the lead story that's out there, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to run with it. You're going to say, hey, look, I've got this get. Tune in to watch my interview because, you know, I've got In this case, Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying something that you know is going to be incredibly controversial. But Katie Couric made the decision to protect Ginsburg, even though she said it, even though she apparently meant it. Katie Couric decided, well, this is going to paint her in a bad light, so I am not going to report it. So anytime you tell me that there is not a liberal bias in the media, I I mean, just, just keep this story in mind. And again, this isn't what This isn't editorializing during the story. There's plenty of that. That's just making the decision that, gee, I don't want to report this because it's going to make one of the people that I like a lot look, I like a lot look very bad. So the public never gets a chance to know. And you wonder why people do not trust the mainstream media. Katie Couric, Exhibit A. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here's the headline. 47-year-old woman dies after a hit-and-run in Wauwatosa on Thursday. Police say it could be related to an attempted auto theft. Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll probably know more about this by tomorrow, but let's, let's kind of put the pieces together. Another one of these horrible stories, another innocent person apparently dead in a, in this case it's a hit and run, reckless driving. Here's the way the local newspaper reports it. 47 year old woman is dead after a hit and run in Wauwatosa early Thursday morning. All right, here's the dazzling details. Story says the incident could be related to an attempted auto theft at the Holiday Inn Express Hotel on um, 1111 West North Avenue, Wauwatosa Police said. News, release from the, news release from the Wauwatosa Police Department said dispatchers received simultaneous reports. So th- these calls are coming in at the same time of an attempted auto theft at the hotel and a hit-and-run near the hotel at 1.50 a.m. The hit-and-run occurred near 11,000 West North Avenue, just down the street from the hotel. So I guess maybe it's possible, but these are unrelated. But let's, let's probably figure out what happened. You have a car theft at the hotel parking lot. You have somebody then driving at a high rate of speed to get away from the scene of the car theft, and they get all of about a block or two, and they hit and kill a 47-year-old woman. Now, the only question is going to be, is this going to be, when they catch the perpetrator who's now killed this woman, is it going to be a Milwaukee juvenile out on the streets at 1.30 in the morning, um, again, stealing the car and now killing somebody? And if it's that situation, will this Milwaukee juvenile have a record as long as your arm of doing similar sorts of things and being turned back out on the street? Or I guess, it, I mean, I guess it could be an adult. You know, who knows what's going to happen? But you know as sure as you know, God made little green apples, that the, these are related incidents. It's the auto theft, and then it's the fleeing the scene, and it's hitting and leaving somebody else dead, which 
I, I understand we sound like a broken record when we talk about this stuff, but how much more of this stuff Will people tolerate in this community? How many more apparently innocent people are going to die simply because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time when you have, I don't know if, if it's a juvenile or not. My guess is it probably is, but who knows? You know, but you have again one of these car thieves, 30 cars a day on average approximately stolen on the mean streets of Milwaukee. Lots of them are used for joyriding or fleeing or reckless driving. People are dying in huge numbers as a result of the reckless driving and things like that. And we continue to just essentially twiddle our thumbs. You get crickets about any sort of meaningful change. How many more people have to die because of this? And we'll watch this story again because my guess is, if and when they end up solving this case. And part of the problem nowadays in Milwaukee is there's so many um, homicides. There's so many things like this that the police are just absolutely overwhelmed. Now, this is Wauwatosa that will be investigating, and maybe they'll be able to identify the person that did it or the people that that did it. But the bottom line is it doesn't change the fact that you've got another attempted car theft and you've got somebody dead as a result of presumably the car thief trying to flee the scene. When, 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 when will we wake up? This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Looking for somewhere fun to watch this Sunday's Packers game? Join WTMJ's Steve Scafidi at Left's Lucky Town in Wauwatosa. Matter of fact, um, St. Patrick's Day, that's my hangout, Left's Lucky Town. Enjoy $18 Miller Lite buckets and $20 Vizzy buckets. I've never had a Vizzy. $20 Vizzy buckets, this might be the opportunity, as well as the WTMJ street team with games, giveaways, and prizes. It's the WTMJ Miller Lite watch party this Sunday at noon at Left's Lucky Town in Wauwatosa. A couple people sent me texts that, Jeff, you were talking about the, the car theft, and then obviously what happened is an attempt to flee the scene of the crime. You have some woman who is hit and killed in a hit and run in Wauwatosa, and the question is, well, is this going to be you know different? You'd think maybe because it's Wauwatosa instead of the city of Milwaukee, is the result going to be different? And I said, no, and unfortunately, probably not. I mean, this will undoubtedly be investigated by Wauwatosa police who do not have quite the, the workload with regard to homicide cases as they do in Milwaukee. But as far as dispositions of matters, it, it, it's all Milwaukee County. And so the, the same district attorney who reviews these types of car thefts and things like that in the city of Milwaukee is also going to review it in Wauwatosa. And as we know, juveniles, even juveniles, and I don't know if this is a juvenile or not, but you know, it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility, juveniles Pretty much no matter how many cars you steal, you, you don't end up getting waived into adult court. Now, this might be a little bit of a different thing because, you know, whoever stole this car or was fleeing the scene hit and killed somebody. So that's a different sort of story. But no, it, it, does it get treated differently? No. And then, of course, the underlying problem is since Wauwatosa is in Milwaukee County, it goes into the Milwaukee County court system, which is an absolute joke, because even if you can get the district attorney's office to charge, particularly in situations where it's a juvenile, the chances of anything significant happening to the juvenile are slim to none, and slim is on a bus out of town. The most you can hope for is they detain the kid 
the car thief a couple hours if it's a kid, and then they send him back to his parents with an instruction not to do it again. Now, like I say, since somebody is dead in this particular case, might get a little bit of a different treatment, but no, it, it's this overall frustration, and maybe it will turn out that these instances are unrelated. Wouldn't bet my last dollar on that. Maybe it will turn out that the person fleeing the scene after the attempted car robbery was first time at the rodeo and just kind of woke up sometime yesterday and said, hey, I'm going to go out at one thirty in the morning and try to boost a car and then I'm going to flee. Might have been their first time at the rodeo, but let's face it, we, we all know better and know as far as disposition, it's all one big mess in Milwaukee County, and it doesn't matter whether it happened in Wauwatosa or Milwaukee or somewhere else. Um, again, this lack of accountability, people die, crimes continue to be committed, and we really don't get much sense that anybody is really too worked up about making material changes. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I have a headache, and stories like this just make the headache worse. The cancel culture has now come for the pumpkin parade. All right. Halloween is, of course, coming up. Halloween has become, well, a much more complex holiday in 2021 than it was, say, when I was growing up. Because back then, the purpose of of Halloween was people would dress in outrageous costumes and you'd go out and you would have fun. Well, nowadays, you've got to be really careful because there's certain costumes. If you dress in that, you're in a lot of trouble. If you, I don't know, dress up in traditional Mexican garb and you're not Mexican, it's cultural appropriation and you should be in trouble. How dare you wear that? And the list goes on and on and on. And it's almost... Difficult to try to figure out the checklist about, okay, what what Halloween costume can you wear and what Halloween costume can't you wear and who is going to be offended by this? But nevertheless, we still try to persist with Halloween because lots of people enjoy it. And the whole purpose is, you know, you're going to go up, you're going to pretend pretend to be somebody else that you're not going to be. And we realize that in most cases, it's in the spirit of fun. But of course, we understand there's people out there who are the fun police. And how dare you do that? How dare you do this? Which brings me to Benjamin Franklin Day Elementary School in Seattle, Washington. It's an elementary school. And for years, they have had, on and around Halloween, they have had what they call the Pumpkin Parade. Now, the Pumpkin Parade, this is an elementary school, is where for that day, the kids are permitted, encouraged, allowed to come to school dressed in costumes. And then at some point in the day, towards the end of the school day, they have a Halloween party. And what happens is the kids walk through the school with their peers as part of the pumpkin parade. And again, this is elementary school, so it's kind of, it's a Halloween party. All right? So you've got that there. Now, you can make various arguments about why in 2021 it might not be a good idea to have a party in school. For example, you could say, hey, this is a pandemic, and and it's just, it's not good to have the kids walking next to each other in the hallways. This would be a problem. All right, if you'd want to make that argument, you could at least say, okay, maybe so, I get it. If you wanted to argue that it is a waste of valuable school time, the kids 
instead of being allowed to come in costumes and have this little party at the end of the day, the kids should be studying math or something like that. They should be in the classrooms. If you wanted to make that argument, I, I could I could understand. I would probably disagree with you and say, look, this is a once a year type of thing, and it's fun, and it's a sort of a bonding exercise, and and you know why do we need to be the fun police? But the argument against the pumpkin parade is not that it's going to distract people from more important schoolwork. It's not that it can't be held safely in the pandemic. Nope. Officials at Benjamin Franklin Day Elementary School have canceled the pumpkin parade and the resultant costume party because they believe it marginalizes students of color. It marginalizes students of color. Administrators are concerned that some students of color do not celebrate the holiday. So as a result, they would feel left out by everybody else coming in costume. Additionally, they say, well, you know, we also are concerned that loud noise levels from people marching down through the halls could be triggering to some kids. I swear I don't make that up. Triggering to some kids, um, which, all right, how do you handle recess? I get, That would be my, my question. How, how do you handle recess or things like that? But the principal reason they decided to cancel the pumpkin parade is because it's discriminatory in that some students of color might might not participate and might feel left out. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, I appreciate that there's lots of objections that, that people can have to Halloween or Halloween parties. I mean, whether, you know, again, whether it's you shouldn't get together in a pandemic situation, whether it's a waste of school time, whether Halloween is a celebration of the devil and we shouldn't be encouraging that. You know, whatever. I understand that there are objections that you can raise to, to Halloween, which is why some people choose not to participate in it. I get all that. But seriously, it has never in all my life occurred to me that Halloween is discriminatory towards persons of color. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I mean, seriously, you put on masks, you put that sheet over your head and you cut the holes and you pretend that you're the ghost and things like that. I, I mean, I, I, as far as I know, that's not necessarily, I mean, Halloween does not discriminate among genders and it doesn't discriminate among races. Don't all kids celebrate Halloween? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. One of the um, parents um, describes this this decision as being, you know, a classic example of, um, you know, the, the ultimate example of an, an exercise in affluent white vanity that is wokeism. In other words, you've got these, you know, wealthy white administrators who are sitting around trying to find 
a solution for a problem that does not exist. All right, is Halloween in itself, in and of itself discriminatory, and do we need to ban it because it marginalizes persons of color? 855-616-1620. And I will tell you around here, my guess is there's lots of children from predominantly majority-minority communities that are going to be trick-or-treating, just like there's all sorts of kids from predominantly white communities that are going to be trick-or-treating. 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Before we go to the calls, here's a text. Jeff, as a person of color, I object to this cancellation. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and that would be because th- this idea that persons, people of color, don't celebrate Halloween is to me the the ultimate example of of this sort of like liberal elitism that, that's out there. As far as I know, I mean, Halloween is not a it's not a holiday that 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 discriminates in any way, shape, or or form. I remember when I lived in Whitefish Bay, we used to have all sorts of kids from actually from all sorts of neighborhoods, you know, white, black. Brown, who would come into our neighborhood and go trick or treating, and everybody was wearing costumes, and it was a fun sort of thing. But I, I didn't, I didn't notice that. Gee, you know, um, the for example, the um, Hispanic children or the um, black children who came to the door that they, I don't know, that they didn't appreciate the candy just as much as the white kids that came to the door. That this idea that this is is, is a racial sort of thing is just absolutely totally beyond me. Eight five five six one. Six one six twenty. Mary in Wal- in Waukesha. Mary, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Yes, Hi. I was just saying that uh, I'm a retired school teacher. So over the years, we've had children for a variety of reasons, sure. maybe religious, that could not participate. So their family and the school would just work together and say, "How about we provide an alternate activity for your child? They'll be supervised in something that's acceptable to you." So we would just have a room, whether it be in the yeah. library, supervised by a teacher. And they would go there, and the rest of the school would participate in the school-wide activity. Now, my understanding is, Mary, that they did something like that. That's what they did. You weren't forced to participate in this. And so you had a handful of kids every year who wouldn't. But they decided, well, we're we're looking at the makeup. And of the five kids who chose not to participate, you know, maybe three are Asian, maybe two are black or whatever. So that, that means that all the students in the school shouldn't be able to participate in this because we don't want to give the impression that we're discriminating against certain groups, which again, it's to me, Mary, it's a complete and total disconnect because my guess is the kids you dealt with, white, black, brown, whatever, they all enjoyed Halloween as a general rule. Correct. Yeah. And uh, again, if you just work together with their families, get their okay first then you have every right to still participate. You, you would, right, you, thanks, Scott, you would, you would think. Now, like I say, I understand if, if they were making different arguments for canceling this. If the school was saying, all right, if it's, it's COVID-19, we don't want all the kids doing the parade. I, all right, I, I might disagree with it, but I would understand that. I would understand it if they were saying, well, we think this is a waste of time. We need to have the kids learning how to read and write. Okay, I would get that. I understand it as well. But that's not it. This is purely an example of 
wokeism. Jeff, I celebrate Halloween every year. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's a time when people can basically be anybody you want to be. That's what people enjoy. Well, okay, my, my comment would be be careful nowadays because maybe that's what Halloween was. That is not what Halloween is now because if you choose a costume that somebody else somewhere is going to deem as cultural appropriation or insensitive to this group or that group or whatever, you know, there, there could, in fact, be consequences. Here's a text. Jeff, we must be the laughing stock of the world. Where there is no issue, we create one. That's that's exactly this. I mean, I always use the phrase that you have a solution in search of a problem. This, to me, is the ultimate example of the solution, which is in search of of the problem, you know, trying to figure, you know, this this out. Um, Jeff, the idea behind All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, and All Saints' Day after Halloween has been lost after many years. Can someone please ask the school administration if they even know or understand the holiday anyways? Well, no. I think the answer is, you know, no, that um, it's it's not. Nobody has a clue with how this is going to work out. Mark in Beaver Dam. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how you doing? Real well, uh, thanks. Really great yeah, really great topic, I think. Um, you know, what's concerning to me, obviously, is this is reflective of kind of canceling things without even understanding why exactly we're canceling them. And, and the previous reference that you made relative to the history of Halloween, I mean, there's there's roots that go all over this world, started in the Celtic culture, Roman Empire influence, Spaniards, Mexico. Um, so I think I think it's really a blind spot, and I think it's trying to compensate for something that's really out of touch. And um, I would be really curious to see how much parental feedback or even student engagement there was prior to making a decision like this to yet again cancel something else that's been part of who we are as a nation. Mark, it's it's interesting, because as near as I can tell, there was no parental feedback sought. This was the opinion and a decision made by uh, the racial equity team, whatever that is, at Benjamin Franklin Day Elementary School. So I, at least my, my sense sure. is it's not like you send out notes to the parents saying, is this an issue? Do you want us to cancel the pumpkin parade? Are your children left right. out? You know, it, it was just kind of a bunch of pointy-headed educators sitting around and thinking, we need to do this because, well, we just think we need to do it. Well, and certainly there's there's likely some things we can look at in schools, right, that maybe uh, don't make a lot of sense or, or do really maybe isolate or segregate yeah. out different cultures or groups. Sure. But this is a No, no, thanks for the call. No, I, absolutely. And as I said you know, earlier, I understand there might be reasons, legitimate reasons for canceling an event like this, or at least arguable reasons for it. But to the credit of the, you know, pointy headed bureaucrats at this elementary school, they're, they're not trying to make up other justifications. They're saying, well, you know, no, we, we, we're, we want to be woke here, you know, and we think that this marginalizes people of color, which caught my attention because I never thought of Halloween as one of those events that, that marginalizes, you know, anybody at all. And as for the second objection, well, kids walking through the hall might be a triggering thing. That, that to me, is just absolutely, totally, 100% ridiculous. Do we not put the kids on a school bus where people shout? Do we not put them on a playground? I mean, give me a break about that. But yet, this is the wokeism that now drives some public education and, of course, 
you know, permeates and drives the cancel culture in this country. I don't care whether they have Halloween at this particular elementary school or not, but the thinking behind canceling it is what I think is just so mind-blowing. On November 2nd, there's going to be a couple interesting elections. There's a governor's election in Virginia that's being watched. Uh, The the candidate, the favorite, is a guy named Terry McAuliffe, who's running. He's a well-known Democrat. And um, the the race is is very, very close because there's general unhappiness with the the Biden administration. And it's kind of being viewed as a bellwether if the Republicans, and I say if, win, this would be, I, I think it would really send shockwaves through the political establishment because it might be seen as, okay, this means that 2022 is going to be even bigger Republican year than people think. I, I don't know. So we're watching that race. There's other races that are being watched locally. There's a really interesting race, and it's a recall race, and it's going on in mequon Thienesville. The mequon Thienesville School Board, four members are are up for recall. It's been a very, very heated situation. Uh, people who are behind the recall believe that the four members of the school board have, have pretty much abdicated their responsibilities and they're allowing the school superintendent to kind of run the school system into the ground. And there's a whole wide variety of issues. And we haven't discussed it necessarily in this program because it's so localized and we have such a large listening area. But it's a very, very contested race and it's gotten really kind of of, it's gotten ugly on lots of extremes. You have the mayor of Mequon and some of the former mayors who are weighing in on the side of the, the school board, who tends to be much more liberal, as opposed to the conservatives who are kind of driving the, the school recall thing. And it's getting media attention. And in general, the media has decided to side with the establishment, the school board candidates. So you, you've got all that stuff going on. And candidly, I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted about it because I'm not a big believer in recalls. I I think unless there's misfeasance or malfeasance, like the Milwaukee County pension scandal 20 years ago, generally speaking, elections have consequences. And if the voters pick losers for the sake of argument, you know that that's you, you vote them out the next time. I do, however, understand the issues that are being raised by the, these recallers, and they're significant. And so I, it, it, that's the, all the stuff that's out there. But it is interesting. One of the challengers running in this, this recall race, uh, Journal Sentinel points out that apparently he's been posting things on social media with references to the Holocaust. Um, post on his Facebook account. It didn't start with the gas chambers. It started with one party controlling the media, one party controlling the message, one party deciding what the truth is. And and it, and it goes on. And I guess whenever I see that, I, I repeat advice that I've given in the past. Doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal. Doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. Doesn't matter what your race is. Generally speaking, references to Hitler, the Holocaust, and Nazi Germany aren't going to fly because they are, in almost every instance, they are going to be inappropriate. Asking kids to wear masks in schools is not Nazi Germany. It's just not. Telling people that they have to be vaccinated, agree or disagree, that's not comparable to the Holocaust. And, you know, the the sooner people would learn to stop making references to Nazi Germany, Hitler, and the Holocaust, the better we would all be. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So Eric Bilstadt, you, knew, you know what the least surprising news story of the day is? Least surprising? Uh, I'll give you a hint. Greg, Greg Matzik had it during his sports. Um, it has to do with Kevin King being Kevin hurt. King injured yet again. Now, mm-hmm. Kevin King, for for most Packers fans, the most vivid memory of him is just giving up that touchdown at the end of yep. the first half in the, the title game, game against yep. Tampa Bay. Um, but okay, so he hurt his he hurt his shoulder in in Cincinnati. And I understand football is a big deal, but here, here I'm just pulling this up because Kevin King injured is kind of like dog bites man. <laughs> I mean, okay, well, so he he had. I'm looking at one of these stories. Kevin King is too injury prone to keep. So. He when they drafted him out of Washington, he played it in Washington College, um, the university. He, he had had a history of shoulder problems, and the Packers decided, oh, we're going to ignore that, and it hasn't gotten any better. His rookie year, 2017. Now there's 16 games. King was able to play in nine games because of a wait for it shoulder injury. 2018. He was only able to play in six of the 16 games because first a groin injury, then hamstring problems. All right. So 2019, he, he played in 15 games and was productive. Um, 2020, uh, missed a ton of games. And when he came back, it was like, oh, I'm supposed to be guarding that guy when they score the <laughs> touchdown. And now when they really and then he, he was hurt at the beginning of the year. And now when they really need him because Jair Alexander is kind of questionable. Well, he's, he's hurt again. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Least surprising story yeah. of the yeah. day. And, but this, but I mean, this this is what happens. You you draft guys that have injury problems, and then you think that they're suddenly going to get better. And gee, surprise follows surprise. You get to the NFL, and the injury problems get worse. Well, hopefully they have a soft matchup this week. We'll see. Could you have no idea what a rookie like Justin Fields would bring. But yeah, no, exactly. But I, it was very contra. I guess a number of us were surprised when they re-signed Kevin King. Right. You know, paid him a whole bunch of money to come back because, again, even even if you think he's okay when he's on the field, the problem is he can't stay on the field. Right. And for can't football players, if you, you know, that's, you, you, you would think you need to be there. But least surprising situation. <laughs> Do I sound bitter? No, I mean, it's just like Kevin King hurt oh, again. Man. I mean, it's just like, you know, there's, there's some of these guys that just, they, they play all the time, and there's others that are just, for whatever reason, they are injury prone, and you know that's that's the problem with what happens when you make these draft decisions. When you guys that are injury prone in right. college, and you pretend that the injuries are going to get better, and it almost never works out. Almost never. Kevin King injured. Okay, well, hopefully you're right, Eric. That's going to be a soft matchup, and maybe you'll figure out a way to get back on the field. But Kevin King injured. Go figure. Um, all right, I want to um, talk about something that. I got I got a, I get a handful of texts anytime I talk about crime issues and I I admit we crime is one of the things that we discuss on this program first of all cuz it it ties into you know my background as being a prosecutor and involved in law enforcement for years secondly I I firmly believe that if you're going to talk about livability in a community and employment and things like that it it, it starts with having a safe environment. It starts with getting crime under control because if a community is plagued with crime, people aren't going to want to live there. 
businesses aren't going to want to invest and people aren't going to want to shop there. I mean, you, you could have somebody with the best intentions who says, you know, I really see a need for a, a full-service grocery store in a particular area that happens to be a high-crime area. And that person might be absolutely right, but they're going to have to put up a bunch of money to put that store in there. And you, you nobody's going to invest good money in a store where people are going to be afraid to shop where it's going to be robbed on a regular basis, and where you're not going to be able to get employees that will be able to work there. You, you've got to get crime under control. You say, hey, I want people to come in and, and rehab. I want people to be part of neighborhoods, and I want them to buy these houses, and I want to rehab them, and I want to turn these neighborhoods into great, safe places. I'm all in favor of that, but you're not going to do that. People aren't going to move into a place that's got you know five, six houses on a block, and two of them are drug houses, or they're, they're being overrun by gangs. It's it's not a chicken and the egg thing. By that I mean I firmly, firmly, firmly believe that you've got to get a handle on crime, and then once you get a handle on crime, you can start with economic development. But businesses, you're not going to put a plant in an area where nobody wants to go, or people are afraid to drive, and things of the like. And I acknowledge that I'm kind of old school when it comes to dealing with crime. I believe that. It starts with getting the criminals off the street. And I don't have a problem with midnight basketball programs, and I don't have a problem with, you know, all this other touchy-feely stuff that's out there. But when you have a juvenile that's stolen eight or nine cars over the course of the last four months and gets held for four hours and given back to his parents or his grandparents or his aunt or his uncle who really can't control the kid or don't care about the kid, and he's out you know, stealing cars 24 hours later, something needs to be done. You can't simply wait till the kid steals the car, drives 90 miles an hour, and hits and kills some woman you know, who happens to be out on the street. That is not a responsible way to do it. So I admit I approach these things from the perspective of you've got to hold the criminals accountable and then all the other things flow from that and that that's the philosophy i approach it with i think it's the philosophy that makes sense but some people get upset well that means we have to build prisons yeah we have to build prisons i'm, I'm comfortable with that well but that means you might have to incarcerate this type of person or that type of person to which i say i don't care C- crime is is colorblind at least as far as i'm concerned if you've got people that are stealing cars i don't care who they are and they refuse to stop well you got to get them off the streets and it doesn't matter to me again white Black, brown, green, blue, don't care. I mean, if, if you're committing crimes and you refuse to stop, you, you've, we've got to protect the rest of society. And I firmly believe that if we concentrated on getting the recidivist criminals off the street, that would be a good start. But we're just we don't have the we don't have the guts to do that for a lot of reasons. and We don't have the political will to do it. So I, I, that is my underlying philosophy. Whenever I talk about that. I always get a handful of texts and or emails from some of the usual suspects who say, well, Jeff, we appreciate what you're saying, but the underlying problem isn't necessarily the bad people that are out there or the people who are committing the crimes. The problem is there's too many guns that are out on the street. Now, follow me with the argument. And I say, Yeah, well, I mean, I said, look, my argument is always the vast majority of gun owners are law-abiding, 99%, 99 99.5%, 99.9%. And I understand 
that in that category, there are people who obtain firearms and use them in an illegal fashion, and they present a huge danger to others. But most law-abiding gun owners, most gun owners, it would never occur to you to, you know, put a gun in your waistband and pull it out and shoot somebody in a dispute or shoot somebody when you're trying to steal their car or shoot somebody when you're trying to, I don't know, hold up the local grocery store. My argument has always been most law-abiding gun owners are not creating the problem. And it's not necessarily too many guns that are out there, but it's too many guns that are in the wrong hands. To which my the response I get from some of the people who text me when I make that argument is they say, no, you're, 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 we understand what you're saying, but the truth is you're never going to be able to stop those bad people from committing crimes. So why don't you address the real issue, which is guns? And why don't you come out and advocate for confiscation of guns? Why does anybody need to own a handgun? Wouldn't the world be safer if we could get rid of all the handguns? If nobody in Milwaukee had a handgun, wouldn't that, by definition, for example, prevent people from shooting people because you wouldn't have a gun? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's let's put aside the Second Amendment for a minute. Let's, just, let's, let's say that the Second Amendment doesn't exist or... The Biden administration was able to repeal it or or whatever. Let's just put that aside. Let's talk about the reality of this. Would the world be a better place if individuals weren't allowed to? And for our conversation, let's just talk about handguns. Let's not even get into hunting rifles or stuff. If individuals were not allowed to own handguns, would the world be a safer place? And related to that, is that is that even something reasonable? I mean, is, is there any way, shape, or form that given where we are in society nowadays, we could somehow wave a magic wand and confiscate all the handguns that are in the possession of all the citizens across the United States? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Now, the solution a lot of people have to the the problem of violence is they say that people should not be allowed to own guns. And I mean, I get, I, I understand the logic of this. I, I think the estimates I saw there's about in the U.S. there's about four hundred million firearms that are owned by people, and of that. About 72 million are, are handguns, whether it's the, um, the various types of handguns that are out there. So you got about 72 million. I would argue that of those 72 million, the vast majority, 71 million, probably more, are in the hands of people who would never think of using those firearms to commit a crime. They, they just wouldn't. But unquestionably, you've got you know, some of those guns that are in the hands of people who think nothing of shooting other people, etc., etc. So the argument is what we need to do is we need to ban the handguns. And what we do is we get the handguns. If you get all the handguns out of the street, off the street, well, you know, it follows that there can't be more shooting deaths, right? If there's no handguns that are available. And I mean, I guess to one extent, the logic is fine. Putting aside the Second Amendment, though, all right, 
can we really, at this point in time, with 72 million people who own handguns, can you just wave a magic wand and say, here, I want you to turn in your handgun. We're going to confiscate the handgun. And would that really make any difference? 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. My argument would be, actually, not only would that not make the world safer, but what would happen is I think you could make the world, argue it would make the world even more dangerous because let's follow that to its logical conclusion. Let's say... The law-abiding citizens who own handguns for protection or sport or whatever, those law-abiding citizens say, gee, it's now a crime for me to possess a handgun. Okay, I tell you what, I will turn my gun in. All right, that that's fine. They turn their guns in. But all right, if somebody, for example, is a felon in possession of a firearm now, are they... They're illegally in possession of a gun. Are they going to turn that gun in? I I don't think so. If somebody has that firearm, that handgun, because they want to use it to commit a crime, are they going to turn that gun in? Of, Of course they're not going to turn the gun in. So even in the abstract, if you could figure out a way to make this somehow work, which let's face it, it's not. What you would have is you would have you would essentially be disarming the civilian population and allowing the the criminals to have yet another added advantage on everybody else because, you know, they'd they'd have the guns. (laughs) It's just it, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Plus. Give me a mechanism that you're going to explain to me how Second Amendment notwithstanding, you're going to be able to collect. I don't know, 72 million firearms from people. It's just we're not set up to do it, which is why I argue that it makes more sense if we're concerned about gun crime. It makes more sense to focus with a laser beam on those people who are committing crimes with firearms, which is why I firmly believe Going back to my idea of, again, just getting dangerous people off the street, I believe there should be mandatory minimum penalties for felons who carry guns. I believe that for gun crimes, there should be mandatory minimum penalties. Let the word go out that even if you don't shoot somebody, you walk into a 7-Eleven store and you are brandishing a handgun and you rob that 7-Eleven store, I don't care what your background is. I don't care who you are. You're going to prison for at least five years, period. So if nothing else, we get the people that are using. It just seems to me it's easier and much more effective rather than trying to take guns from millions and millions and millions of people who are not causing problems with them. It makes much more sense to identify that small set of people, subset of people who are in possession of firearms, who are using them wrong, and then when you catch them, simply say, we are not going to tolerate this, boom, five years in prison, 10 years in prison, whatever it's going to be, until the word gets out that you carry a gun in the commission of a crime, and you're, you're going to have to pay a significant penalty for it. To me, that makes so more, much more sense. And in the real world, where, let's face it, I mean, we're not, we don't have enough cops to go door to door and conduct house by house searches trying to determine whether people have handguns in their houses or not. We just don't do it. It's not practical. It's not a reasonable solution. And it's a far inferior solution, at least in my mind, than to concentrate on the people who are using guns 
incorrectly, using them illegally. And I would lump that in the same category of the people who are selling guns to people who are then using them illegally if you're not following all the rules. But why don't we concentrate on the people who are using the the guns to commit the crimes first and then see where we are? Or explain to me how reasonably you're going to be able to confiscate 72 million million firearms. And the answer is, you're, you're not. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I don't think the 2020 election was stolen. And I, I argued that yesterday. I understand that some people don't want to hear that. I do think, though that there is a chance it was bought. And, and quite candidly, this is where I think Republicans should be focusing their efforts. And and it's it's not, I, I candidly, I think, you know, we're spinning our wheels. Republicans are spinning their wheels if they sit and say, okay, well, you know, we, we want to we do forensic analysis of ballots to determine, gee, was some voting machine co-opted? That, that stuff didn't happen. That, that's, that's Looney Tunes. I, I think the reality of what happened was, you know, more people voted for Joe Biden than Donald Trump. That was it. As I argued yesterday, though, to me, the the where you need to look at stuff is what were the procedures that were done? Were there procedures used to juice turnout that violated state law or should have violated state law? And, and that's where the, the story about the Zuck Bucks come in. And New York Post is all over this. And there's some new publications, investigations out by some of their reporters. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, of course, who is, you know, one of the big time left wing activists and extremely wealthy and all that. Here's here is what happened. And this happened in Wisconsin. I'm going to try to make it as as simple as possible because it may very well have been legal, but to me, it's not right. And Republican legislators tried to stop it from happening again, and Governor Evers, because it benefits Democrats, have decided that, no, he, he wants no part of stopping that. So, so here's the deal. Mark Zuckerberg and his wife take hundreds of millions of dollars of their money, like $420 million, and they fund a couple groups. One is called the Center for Technology and Civic Life, and the other is called the Center for Election Innovation and Research. And these are supposedly like bipartisan, let's make it easier to vote groups. Okay, so he's funding these two groups. What happens is these two groups then reach out to communities all over the country. And they say, tell you what, we've got all this money to, to like clerks. They say, we're going to give you a whole chunk of money, you know, and, and you can use it to help run elections. We're going to do that. But we've got strings attached to it. We have certain rule. We want to put our own people in there to help work with you. We want to do all those things. And if you let us do it, we're going to give you this money. Well, okay, that, that's fine. Well, what it turns out happens is the bulk of this money goes to large urban areas that tend to vote Democrat. For example, um, 25 grants of a million dollars or more went to cities and counties in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Virginia. 
Of those 25 grants of a million dollars or more, 23 went to places where Joe Biden won. In Wisconsin, I believe there were six communities that got big-time grants. Now, all, lots of communities got small amounts of money, but the, the big dollars, the big dollars ended up going into areas where Joe Biden won, and they were heavily Democratic areas. For example, a bunch of money went into Milwaukee, bunch of money went into Madison, bunch of money went to Brown County, which is not necessarily Democratic-leaning, but the bulk of that money went into Green Bay, which is extremely Democrat-leaning. And what happened is this group then, all right, as part of that money, insisted that the money be used to, I don't know, essentially turn into get-out-the-vote operations. For example, um, one of the things that it funded was Vote Navigators, which would launch outreach campaigns to try to get people to register and to vote. And you might say, well, Jeff, what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with it per se, except this money is being spent in heavily Democratic areas. So it's not like these navigators go and say, we're we're telling you who to vote for. But what they do is they say, okay, let's go in the city of Milwaukee, and we know out of of 10 doors that we knock on – uh, and we register people, eight out of those 10 people are going to vote Democrat. So it, it's just by getting those people registered in these heavily Democratic areas, you end up juicing the vote. Um, for example, in Wisconsin, navigators were used to assist voters, answer questions, and witness absentee ballot signatures. Um, so, But they're doing it, again, in the heavily Democrat areas. So it's not like it's fraud per se. It's not like these navigators, and there's some other you know, questionable activities that maybe they engaged in, but that, that's not the real point. It's that these operations are funding essentially what, while they're not, they're not particularly partisan get-out-the-vote activities, they are get-out-the-vote activities in areas that were heavily Democratic with the idea of juicing the vote in those areas. And that's... You know, pretty much what happened, and it's what happened across the country in contested states. Now, if you were really caring about election reform and clean elections, it wouldn't be that you would necessarily stop these groups from putting money into, you know, helping turn out vote, uh, helping people register and things like that. What you would do, though, is assure that it gets distributed fairly, which is like if the Zuckerberg wants, Zuckerbergs want to take the Zuck bucks and they want to, you know, send Wisconsin $25 million or, or whatever, that, that's fine, but it should be distributed evenly across the state so that you don't give one party an unfair advantage. And if anybody doesn't think that this was done with the idea of trying to increase turnout in heavily Democratic areas, well, my argument would be, again, make sure you duck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck. And and it's not that I don't think there's any real evidence that's out there that the navigators or the people as part of this group, you know, filled out ballots or committed fraud per se. But this was an effort to turn out, register more voters, get more people voting. But it was targeted by and large in the heavily Democratic areas. I would argue 
that, you know, imagine if this was flipped around. Imagine if you had uh, a very wealthy Republican donor. Diane Hendricks, is a, she, she owns ABC Supply in Beloit. She's always down as one of the heaviest Republican donors. Imagine if you had a situation where it turned out that Diane Hendricks was creating some of these shadow groups and they were pouring tons of money into working with clerk's offices in heavily Republican areas to go around and essentially register voters and review absentee ballots and things like that. You know that all the usual suspects would be screaming, this is an effort to disenfranchise voters in Madison or Milwaukee. This is an effort to kind of steal elections. But because it was done on the other side, you you get no comment on it. Again, I'm, I don't believe that this is fraud in violation of the laws, because as near as I can tell, this is a loophole that allows this to happen. There's nothing that stops groups funded by Zuckerberg from offering money to different city election officials or whatever, clerks, to, to help run the election and help do this kind of outreach. They get to do that. And the fact that it's targeted in areas that are, in this case, heavily Democratic, you know the effect was to try to juice the turnout. And the argument is, well, you know, don't you think voting is is good? Well, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's great. But when you have money that is being spent and it's being spent only in certain areas to try to juice the turnout in those areas, and you know that the voters in those particular areas are more inclined to vote, in this case, Democrat, but, but you again, reverse it Republican as well, strikes me that this is sort of a perversion of democracy. And I think it's, it's legal. Uh, I think it's certainly legal in Wisconsin, at least so far, but it doesn't make it right. If you want to read more about this, the New York Post is all over it. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty has been talking about this as well. And they sort of did a study, and they found that, you know, the communities that got the Zuck bucks, they, they ended up having higher voter turnouts than they did in the past. And I think it's a reasonable correlation to say that some of that was due to this outside money that was coming in. Is it fraud? No, I don't think it's fraud. Is it, does it mean that the election was stolen? No, I don't think it means the election was stolen. It could, however, mean that at least in Wisconsin on the presidential level, the election was bought. Those are two different things. But to me, if the Republicans want to investigate stuff, that that's the thing to kind of focus on. Try to figure out what the real effect of the Zuck bucks were and things like that and what can be done to stop that as opposed to maybe some of these other things where, candidly, you're just kind of going through the looking glass and chasing down a rabbit hole. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Contact them at 920-291-3800 or visit PellaWI.com to learn about their Pella Promise and set up a free consultation. That's Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Pella now and pay later. A couple people texting me, some of my reliable list, liberal listeners, going, I, what, what's, what's the problem with Zuckbox? We don't see any problem with that. So you've got some rich billionaire that's putting in billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, and giving it to communities to boost turnout in liberal areas and giving it to, uh, again, the Elections Commission so they can use it to boost turnout in liberal areas. What's wrong with that? What do you have against voting? Well, I, I have nothing against voting, 
But the idea that we're going to pay millions of dollars and pour it into areas, in this case, that are heavily Democrat, knowing that it's going to be used to help turn out votes, I just think that government shouldn't be involved in in doing that sort of thing. And and yes, it is legal. And and yes, as far as I know, coming up in the 2022 elections and the 2024 elections, tactics like this, I, I think, would, in fact, be legal. And maybe you're going to see corresponding grants coming to turnout and juice the turnout in Republican held districts. And if the Republicans win in 2022, you know that there's going to be the Democrats that are going to be screaming about that. Oh, this was unfair. We put these records in. Look, I, I, I'm i not one of these people that go down this fraud route. But if you do look at the 2020 election, and I believe that Donald Trump lost, I also believe that there was all sorts of practices that were employed, which were either... I think um, which were either questionable as far as legality or should have been made Ill- illegal. And that's where I think election review should be conducted. OK, let's let's figure out what the rules need to be moving forward. Do we have democracy in the park? Do we allow people to claim that they are, you know, permanently unable to, you know, cast a ballot in person? Um, do, what, what are the these rules? Are there people that are abusing the rules? Are these rules being properly interpreted? I just think that you got to get the elections on even footing and then, you know, move on. I don't think there's any question in 2020, you had Democrats that were more motivated than a lot of Republicans were, and they took advantage of loopholes or decisions made by, I don't know, similarly leaning election officials in various communities. And, and, and that's all well and good. That it, it happened. It's in the past. Now, though, I think, you know, moving forward, you got to figure, I mean, do we want people like Mark Zuckerberg through donations to you know election commissioners being able to juice the turnout in areas? And is it is it, I guess, better for democracy if Republicans now respond in kind? Or maybe should we saying, you know, maybe maybe these private donations designed to, again, juice turnout in certain areas, whether it's Democrat or Republican, maybe that's really not the role. And maybe, you know, the government should just go back to running elections on its own without having to sign off and cut deals with private entities that clearly have an agenda and clearly have an interest. Just saying. All right. Here's the story. It's it's not surprising, but it's one of these sort of untold stories about the out of control border. Now, one of the arguments that's being made about what's going on in the border is we, we have to have open borders. Because the people that are coming here, the people that are traveling from Haiti, the pe- people that are traveling from South American countries that are you know, putting their life at risk, I mean, they're, they're seeking this better life. And how can we in the United States, how can we say no? You know, how, how can we do that? Well, my argument is that, look, I, I think it's it's unfortunate that, you know, people, you know, live in countries that aren't as affluent as the United States. I understand why they want to come to the United States, but no country in the world that anybody wants to go to has open borders. Matter of fact, most countries that people don't want to go to don't even have open borders. And, you know, we do not have the infrastructure in this country that we can just support tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people streaming in illegally in this into this country, disappearing in the country, and then taking advantage of the different social services this country provides. We cannot afford to do that. And, and that's 
That's just the simple reality, which is why we have to control the borders. And it's why I've argued for the longest time that if we, you know, the people that are in this country illegally right now who've been here most of their life, the dreamers, that's fine. I have no problem with giving them a pathway to at least legal residency, not necessarily citizenship, but legal residency. But you can't do that as long as you've got tens of thousands of people streaming across the border every month. You you can't deal with the people that are here until you shut off the flow. And the Biden administration has done a lousy job of doing that. But nevertheless, we get the images on TV and the claims that, oh, these are these are people that are just looking for a better life and they have nothing, etc. And And that's I think undoubtedly the majority of people are coming here. Interesting story, though, in the Wall Street Journal today. Middle-class migrants fly to Mexico and then cross the U.S. border illegally. More migrants illegally entering the U.S. to apply for asylum are members of South America's middle class who fly to the border by plane, according to authorities and AIDS workers, while the majority of the people who come to the U.S. through Mexico are among the world's poorest, fleeing poverty and crime, um, such as the thousands of Haitians who recently formed the makeshift camp. The growth in middle class migrants reflects continued hardship in nations like Brazil and Venezuela, um, along with associated economic downturns. The U.S. government doesn't keep track of how migrants arrive at the border or their financial status, which is really interesting. But um, the chief border patrol agent in Yuma says they intercept people who they say recently flew to the Mexican border city nearly every day. They get off the plane, they go to a cab, they go to a bus, and then they're driven up and they walk in and they turn themselves over to us. Now, I'm not arguing that this is the majority of people, but it would be interesting to know that how many of these more affluent affluent migrants really are are coming in as well. Is it 2%? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 30%? I, I don't know. And the government doesn't know either. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Mike Spalding, before you leave, have you ever, have you ever been in a two-story Target? No, but it's, uh, no, I have not. Oh, they are, they are the coolest thing in the world. First one I was ever at was um, my niece, uh, Sydney, just graduated last spring from uh, San Diego State, San Diego. So I was out there with her and, and my brother, and we were like, you know, whenever you go out there, college kids need stuff. So we go to, they have this big Target store in San Diego, and it's two stories. I mean, now, <laughs> this perhaps is an indicator of, you know where my life is, but I was just excited. I mean, it's 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 a two story Target with an escalator and stuff. I mean, I will tell you if they did if if they did not have it at this Target store, you did not need it. Period. That was it. It was very cool. Was it separated like groceries on one, goods on the other? Well, it was all uh, okay. It was it was all mixed. I mean, on the first floor they had a huge liquor department. They had groceries, but they also had, I mean, they also had had stuff. I mean, it was it was it was like. Any, I mean, imagine like a giant Target store, but spread out over two floors, yeah. you know, so, but, but it was really kind of cool. I'm like, I'm riding an escalator in a Target store to go up and look at stuff. It was just kind of a cool thing. You know, a nice open balcony. I'm sure the, the, the views are great or something like well, that. Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't, we did I'm not a shopper. We didn't hang around that much, <laughs> but they had, and they had, um, but it was interesting. I'm trying to figure out 
what, what contraptions they had. Because, you know, at Target, you've got the, the shopping carts. Mm-hmm. And there, I'm trying to figure out, there was a way you could take your shopping cart up the escalator. And I'm, I'm just, I forget exactly how they had it worked out. But like a people mover, kind of. Was it like a people yeah, mover type I thing? I don't exactly remember. It was a very cool thing. Now, the reason I bring this up, why are we talking about a two-story target state? I'm not because Well, no, no, no. You have your chance because, what's today, the 14th? Mm-hmm. Ten days from now, October 24th, Bayshore Town Center, or whatever they call mm-hmm. that now, they are opening a, a two-story target store. Oh, all right. Right. At, who needs California living prices who, when you can just Right, when you can go when you can go over to Bayshore. <laughs> right, the, the centerpiece at Bayshore and... I guess what they call it, Glendale's Bayshore now. When when I grew up, it was Bayshore Shopping Center, and then it became Bayshore Mall, then it became Bayshore Town Center, now it's just Bayshore. Okay, but we all know where I'm talking about. The big Boston store that used to be in the, the center in the anchor, that, of course, has gone the way of the dodo bird, but they're October 24th, they're opening up this giant Target store at, at Bayshore. So I'll see you there then. Yeah, well, I like I no, I I tell you, I like I love Target stores. My um, on those many occasions when I used to get on the nerves of my late wife, what she would do, and this I I just she would she would say, here's twenty dollars, go out to Target. Now this is, of course, I'm I'm dating myself now, but you could give me twenty dollars, I could walk, I could kill an hour in Target, just walking up and down the aisles, going, huh. A Sam and Dave cassette tape for ninety nine cents. Oh, this is kind of cool. Or hey, there's a there's a, a tire pressure gauge. I don't think I have one of those. It's a dollar ninety nine. I'll take. I could kill an hour just walking up and down the aisles of, of Target. Do you stuff? Do you ever venture to the two story Metro Market we have right over here in Shorewood? No, I, I've been in there. I, I've, I've been in there when it first opened up, but yeah, I haven't been there. If you're since a fan then. of two story shopping centers. That's that's a, it's a nice one. Yeah, the parking is always a problem though. Yeah, the parking. I, I remember. Once, when it first opened up, going in there, and it was just kind of, I, I just, I was amazed that there were not more traffic accidents in that parking lot and considered myself to be lucky getting out of it, so I haven't been back in. Okay, so, all right, but you got the, the Target store, two-story Target store. Opening I'm, I'm up. putting it on my calendar today. All right, well, that's, that's when, you, when you have the news meeting. You know, maybe that's, you know, we're looking for something 10 days from now, October 24th, send somebody over to cover the opening of the Target store at, at Bayshore. Why do I bring this up? There is, in fact, a, a reason. I want to see this succeed in, in the worst way. I mean, I, I think that area, and again, I, I grew up in Glendale. I grew up close to Bayshore. Um, shopping center. Um, I was about, I mean, I grew up in Glendale right by Nicolay High School. So I lived within a mile of the various iterations of Bayshore. And then for going on 30 years, I lived in Whitefish Bay and Bayshore Town Center or Bayshore Mall. It was one of the closest places to go to. So I, even though I don't live close to there now, I, I very much want it to succeed. Now, one of the things that they're going to need to do, though, and this is the, the talking point, if if you want to make sure that these stores are going to succeed, you know, there's there's all sorts of, of stuff that you need to control. But I, I will tell you, I think one of the biggest things that you're going to need to have happen is there's going to be a need to control problems with shoplifting. Now, I, I bring this up because there's a couple stories. New York Times has one. San Francisco story has one. Maybe you've been following this, but there's a huge problem nationwide with shoplifting. It's gotten to the point that um, in San Francisco, for example, because they are dealing with organized shoplifting, they, they're closing all these different Walgreens stores. Um, Walgreens, let's see, they just announced the other day that they're closing another five stores 
in San Francisco, not because there's not business, but they're closing them because of a continuing problem of organized shoplifting. Um, the spokesperson for Walgreens says organized retail crime continues to be a challenge facing retailers across San Francisco. Retail theft across our San Francisco stores has continued to increase in the past five months to five times our chain average. And they say that Walgreens, for example, their San Francisco tours stores have been targeted by professional thieves who resell the goods they steal, mainly through online marketplaces. See, that's that's a problem that like Lowe's is having, that uh, Home Depot is having. You know, people will go in and they'll, you know, you'll steal the power tools or whatever. Well, you don't have to like put them in the back of a truck and go down an alley nowadays. What you can do is you can go on eBay or any of these other, you know, e-commerce sites and you can sell these stolen property. Um, and the concern is like organized theft rings. And again, this is not a unique problem. I'm just looking at for example this is a police report from a couple years ago it's right around christmas time it's a north shore police report and they were talking about all the shoplifting incidents that occurred at at kohl's which there's a very nice kohl's store at at bayshore um two males and a female took 35 items of nike clothing valued at twelve hundred dollars and fled november 29th three teenage boys a couple years ago three teenage boys stole a thousand dollars worth of nike clothes in a grab and run theft at 927 a.m on december third. A 31-year-old Cedar Grove female was cited for retail theft after stealing $946 worth of shirts, bras, and perfumes from Kohl's at 5.41 p.m. on November 26th. A 25-year-old Oak Creek woman and a 39-year-old Milwaukee woman were arrested for stealing a bottle of perfume November 28th. A, let's see, a 39-year-old Milwaukee man was cited for retail theft at 5 p.m. December 3rd when he selected six electronic items valued at $5.59, covered the price tag with with UPC barcodes from placements, took the items to a register, scanned the items, charged him only $23. So and, and th- th- it goes on. I could spend the next 10 minutes reading the, the police reports on this. So you, you've got organized shoplifting. You've got unorganized shoplifting. It is a huge problem to the point that it is causing some stores to actually like even close down, not necessarily here, but in other areas. And whenever I see these stores that are opening up in areas and you want them to succeed and you know that they're going to be incredibly successful and you know that there's going to be a demand for what they have to offer in the community. But yet that that giant question mark that's out there is, you know, are they going to be able to make a go of it and it, or are they going to be brought down not by the marketplace, not by people not wanting to go there and patronize the place, but is is theft going to be too much to overcome. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, I think one of the things that's gotten lost in a lot of our conversations about crime, we, we talk about the big stuff. We talk about the homicides appropriately. We talk about the shootings. We talk about the reckless drivings. We talk about the car thefts, all that type of stuff. And, and that that's fair. That's what's getting the headlines. I guess in some respects, I'm a little concerned that we're not talking. We're not talking about some of the other stuff that people might tend to think is is minor. Oh, so people are going in and stealing stuff for the stores. Well, that what, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is if if it gets to be too much, 
what happens is stores do what Walgreens has decided to do in San Francisco, which is simply throw up their hands and say, too much stuff is being stolen. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How big a deal do you think shoplifting is? And does shoplifting... And I'm, I mean, you got the new targets opening up in Bayshore, but it, it could be any of these stores around here. For retailers, how big a deal is it? And I think, quite candidly, this is an incredibly undercovered story. What do you think? We discuss in a minute. 855-616-1620. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. People call up during the break, get screened, get online, and then drop off right when the show comes back. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I just think one of the undercovered stories is is the problems with shoplifting. And I think it's more of a deal and will continue to be more of a deal than people want to give credit to. Now, here's part of the problem. From the perspective of retailers, they, they don't want to advertise the fact that shoplifting is as bad as it is because it's, it's bad for business. If you say, if you put out there that, hey, in a X shopping center or, or whatever, you know, you, we, we've had 15 or 20 different complaints about shoplifting over a one week period and, and we've called the cops on all these things. Well, then that word gets out and then people start to think, oh, do I want to go there because there's all these people that are stealing stuff from there? And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So a lot of times stores I think like to keep this hush hush. They they don't they don't want to advertise this because they don't want to scare away legitimate customers. But the problem is while you're doing that, it just emboldens the, the shoplifters to the point that uh, again here you've got these five WalMarts or five Walgreens stores in in San Francisco, which are part of a growing trend of stores that are closing because so much stuff is getting stolen for that. Jeff, here's a text. I say good for. Walgreens for taking a stand, bad for the good citizens in those communities that make use of Walgreens. But until this country starts taking law and order seriously again, we're going to see a lot more of this. I'm told people can literally walk out of various stores across the country with unpaid items in their hands and not be stopped by security or law enforcement. Well, yes, there there is there is an element of that. Security people are told, don't don't get involved. Don't escalate the situation. So you have people that are, are stealing with impunity. Maybe they get caught. Maybe they don't. In many areas in California, they've taken the position that we're, we're not even going to charge if it's less than a thousand bucks. In Wisconsin, it's a misdemeanor if you steal $2,500 or less. That's assuming that you're, you're going to get charged. And my guess is of the people that end up, um, of the people that end up shoplifting and stealing stuff, the amount, the number of people who get caught is probably only a small fraction of the number of people who are actually stealing stuff. I think that that's probably a safe thing to say. And of those people who get caught, the, the number of people who actually get prosecuted and held accountable is probably slim to none. Now, I understand part of this is that if you're in the district attorney's office and you say, okay, the guy on the radio is saying we're not aggressively going after shoplifters, fine, here's this desk here and I've got all these murders that are 
here, and I've got all these rapes here, and I've got all these reckless driving situations in here, and we've only got X number of judges, so shoplifters go to the bottom of the pile. I, I appreciate that that's the situation, but the reality is, if you don't get control of this, how can these businesses, you know, deal with this? Um, here's one of our texts, Jeff. I think you're right. It's a huge deal. Then they cite one particular business. This business is everywhere in the state except within the boundaries of the city of Milwaukee because Milwaukee doesn't aggressively enforce shoplifting as a a crime. And the texture goes on to say, I, I don't blame them. Well, this ties back to what I was talking about earlier when, you know, businesses make decisions as to, you know, where you're going to locate. And one of the principal factors is, is crime. And shoplifting is an, a great example of that. You've got your margins, right? So if you're a business, you're trying to figure out, okay, I've got to... You know, I, I've, I've got to pay my employees, I've got to pay my rent, I've got to buy the goods, and I need to have a certain profit margin. And, you know, whenever you have people that come in and steal, the term they use to describe that is shrink, like shrinking the, the profit margin. And once those percentages get so large, you're in a certain situation where you're saying, hey, we're not making as much money as this store as we make in others. I, I hope that Bayshore Target succeeds, and I'm not predicting it fails, although Shoplifting has historically been a huge issue at other stores in in that area. So I hope they're willing to deal with this aggressively because that's going to be a great store. Similarly, as we move into the holiday season, you know that for a lot of retailers that are out there, they're going to be more and more likely to be targeted by people who think they can go in and steal with impunity. I hope, 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 that that is not the case. Jeff, I think you're right. Shoplifting is grossly undercovered in the media, and sadly, like everything else, it is under-prosecuted. Jeff, I think you're right on. The thieves are out of control. The owners of these stores have to pay for stolen goods. The legitimate customers also have to pay higher prices. Right, That that's the other effect of it. The there There is, I assume that there's probably... In, in a retail business, there's probably a, a certain amounted, uh, a certain amount of a percentage. We we know that some stuff is going to walk away. We we know that we kind of build that in. But once that percentage goes up, that starts to affect your bottom line, and you got to figure out where it's going to come from. Bottom line of all this is this is a big deal. It is not a victimless crime. And just like we need to be outraged about car thefts and reckless driving and homicides, we also need, if we want to have nice things and if we want to have nice stores, we need to be outraged about stuff like retail theft because it's getting worse. When we come back, we're going to find out what's going on on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.